The teaching for this morning is going to come from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 29. And this is God's Word. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she, stood, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that, he had, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to look at this passage together this morning. The passage that describes and tells the account of Jesus' resurrection according to 
uh, the Apostle John. And uh, as we, we come to this passage, you know, th- this stands at the heart of the Christian faith, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. And to even talk about the resurrection is to make a claim of first importance for a Christian, for the Christian church, because Christianity is based on God's actions in history, and not just any actions, but God's actions in history in Jesus Christ. And because they're actions in history, they're not repeatable. They're, they're actions that our access to comes to us through the words of Scripture. And therefore, when we, we talk about the resurrection, we are saying that these, this story, each of the, the four gospel accounts, and as we read about uh, later in the New Testament, r- writers describing the resurrection of Jesus we're talking about something that isn't, um, how to say it, a myth or a legend. What we're claiming is a dead person literally rose from the dead. So that the writer of Hebrews, he writes, he has appeared, talking about Jesus, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So one-time event that changes the course of history forever. And the Apostle Paul, he writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Everything hangs on this. This is why the church gathers week in and week out to listen to the scriptures and to celebrate what God has done in Jesus. But here's the thing, none of us were there. Not one of us saw this. This is not new news to you, I know that. (laughs) But I do think it's important, especially in a part of the country where Christianity is, is more or less pervasive. This is not, um, how to put it, trying to figure out the right word. We're not just celebrating, um, a distant memory. We're, we're talking about real events that fundamentally change the course of history and people's lives forever. I guess to bring it down a little bit, if your mom and dad didn't get together and date and get married and have children, you wouldn't be here. Those are historical events that have fundamentally shaped who you are and why you're here today. So if we don't have access to to this, we weren't there, what are we supposed to do? Well, John actually anticipates this very situation that we find ourselves in at the very end of John chapter 20. It's not printed in your worship folder, but he writes this in verse 31 of this chapter. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things are written. Now, that word, these things, that phrase, really does cover all of what John has written throughout his whole gospel. But it's after the resurrection that he writes it. 
In other words, what John is helping us to see of all that he has written, all of which is written that you might believe, it is the resurrection at the end of it. That's the pinnacle of it, the climax of all that he has written so that you might believe. And so here's the question for us this morning. What did those that saw this write? What did they write and why should you believe it? And to get at those questions, I want to I look at the plausibility of the resurrection. I want to look at the good news of the resurrection and then finish with the power of the resurrection. So we'll, we'll start out with the plausibility of the resurrection. I, I want to just say up front that I don't assume everybody here believes biblical religion. And what I mean by that is that the Bible assumes a much greater overlap between the supernatural realm and the natural realm than many would in our day and time. It is a baseline assumption, and we see that assumption throughout this passage, not the least of which the idea that someone is resurrected from the dead, but there's angels here. Uh, Jesus walks through locked doors as a physical human being. There are, there are realities in this passage that go beyond our ability to explain. But that doesn't mean they're not true. Our inability to explain certain things does not mean they're not true. The Bible assumes a significant overlap between the supernatural and the natural. And one of the claims that is often mentioned to, to set aside the scriptures as a whole, but, but particularly passages like this, is that really these are fabricated stories. These are stories that certain church leader, leaders much later, over hundreds of years later, wrote out of power struggles and various agendas within this thing called the church in order to gain an upper hand. But what I want to I show us briefly here are a few of the ways in which this text itself is written to give you confidence, to help you to know this is not a fabricated story, but this is a, an account by those who saw it that is reliable so that you might believe. Notice, first of all, how do we know that this account can be trusted? Well, first, let's look at the idea of just the question of what were those characters, the people in the story, expecting? You have Mary, Mary Magdalene there in verse 1. And then in verse 3, the apostle Peter shows up with uh, another disciple here who I think is, is the apostle John. Uh, whether or not it's precisely the Apostle John, it is certainly the, the disciple who wrote this gospel. We have those two disciples, then later on we, we, we come into contact with the rest of them, the, the other 12, um, and then specifically Thomas is named. What were these folks expecting? Well, first of all, let's take Mary. Verse 1, now in the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken away from the, 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 had been taken, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she runs back and she tells Simon Peter and, and the other disciple and, and she says to them, 
the one whom Jesus loved, they, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. We do not know where they have laid him. You know what that implies? She doesn't think he's, he's alive. She wasn't expecting the resurrection. And we see this two more times from, Jesus, from Mary. In verse 13, she's now standing outside the tomb weeping. And she peeks inside the tomb and sees these two angels. And they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says again, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And again, a little bit further down, in verse 15, Jesus has been standing outside this tomb, and he says to her, woman, why are you weeping? And again, she says, sir, if you have carried him away, she thinks he's the gardener, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Mary's expectation is that Jesus' body was stolen, that robbers came and took his body. She's not expecting the resurrection. Thomas isn't expecting it either. After the disciples, his friends, tell him, we've seen the Lord, he defiantly says, unless I can see those wounds and touch those wounds and see him right here, I will never believe. He's not expecting the resurrection. And somewhat more subtly, but all still very important in verse 9. Notice what it says. For as yet, they, that is Peter and John, the other disciple here, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They were not expecting the resurrection from their Bible. They didn't think it was going to happen. And that's very important because that little... Inclusion there in verse 9 helps us to understand that they didn't fabricate a story to fit their understanding of Scripture. The idea of the resurrection as fitting their understanding of God's Word, they had not yet understood that. And in fact, it took Jesus after his resurrection, as he's with them for 40 days, teaching them the Scriptures that the Son of Man must die and rise again. Luke chapter 24. They were not expecting the resurrection. In other words, if if they were fabricating a story, why would they present it? As if they had no idea that was going to come. But secondly, notice the prominent role of Mary here. If you look in verse 16, she is the first one to see Jesus alive from the dead. Jesus says to her, Mary, and she turns and says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. She's the first one to see Jesus alive from the dead. Verse 18, she's also the first one to report to the disciples that he is alive. Now, for most of us, this might not really occur to us. But in the first century, it was very unusual, if ever the case, that a woman's testimony would be accepted in a court. And here we have a woman at the center of the resurrection story, the first one to see Jesus alive from the dead, and the first one to report on his resurrection. 
And to underscore this point, in chapter 21, when John mentions the three resurrection appearances to the disciples, this appearance isn't recorded. Jesus' appearance to Mary. You see, if you were trying to fabricate a story, you would leave Mary out of the story entirely. But also notice, not just they weren't expecting it and and Mary's role in the story, but stop and think about Thomas for a moment. Here's one of the 12 disciples who's been with Jesus for three years. And here he is described in the most embarrassing way. In an obstinate, uh, sort of defiant way, Thomas says, there's no way I'm going to believe this unless I see him right here on my terms, the way I want to see it. And the story also includes Jesus' reproof of him in public. If you were a religious leader trying to get people to follow you, you would not include these kinds of details. They undermine your credibility. They make you look stupid and embarrassed. This is another one of those examples, kind of like when, when... Jesus says to to Peter, get behind me, Satan. These are embarrassing details. You wouldn't include those if it was fabricated. But then lastly, look here in verses 4 to 7, the early part of the the chapter. It, It describes Peter and this other disciple after Mary has come and said that Jesus is not in the tomb and they're running. It says both of them were running together. And then interestingly... They include, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Why, why include that? Why not just say they both ran to the tomb? And then it says, and stooping to look in, he, that is the other disciple, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. And then Peter, who's huffing and puffing, eventually shows up, and Peter goes in before this other one. And then the other disciple goes in. Why why all that detail? That's what we call eyewitness account. Those are details that really don't advance the narrative any. But they help us to realize, hey, this was written by people who were really there. And they're telling us the details of the situation. And not only that, it, it includes details here about the linen cloths. Notice this. Verse 6, Peter saw the linen cloths lying there. And then in verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. Now, why include all this about these cloths? Well, if Jesus' body had been stolen and robbed, thieves are not going to leave those cloths behind, let alone take the time to fold them up and put them nicely on the, on the stone tablet that Jesus was lying on. Here John is telling us, hey look, he wasn't stolen. Something else is going on here. Now, why, why, why go through that? Well, because if you're anything like me, believing this story is not easy. And you need to know it was no easier for them on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, than it is for us. And all of these ingredients in this story are intended to help you to believe this story. 
Now, why does it all matter? The reason it matters is because there's good news here. There is good news in the story of the resurrection. Let's look at that. Notice, notice here in uh, verse 19. On the evening of that, uh, the same day that Jesus rose from the dead, and he says it's the first day of the week, just like in verse 1. The doors were locked, the disciples were there, and Jesus comes and he stands among them. The first word Jesus speaks to his disciples is peace be with you. I don't know if you caught that when we read this, pa- this passage together, but three times Jesus says to his disciples, peace be with you. It is the first word Jesus gives to us as he's raised from the dead. And I want you to think about this for a moment. To whom does he speak this word of peace? Well, in verse 19, it's the first time he says it, to his disciples. This would have been the first time they see Jesus after they all abandoned him. It would have been the first time that Peter sees Jesus after he denied him three times. And Jesus comes and says, peace be with you. This is a word of peace to traitors, to people who are cowards, to those who lack a backbone, who are more concerned about our own self-preservation. But notice in verse 21, a little bit later, he says again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, remember, they're locked in a room because they're afraid of the Jews. And Jesus comes and says again, peace be with you. I'm sending you out of here, into this world, to carry on what I have begun. In other words, Jesus comes and he speaks peace to the weak and the fearful. He comes and speaks peace to those who aren't sure what to do except hole up in a room. And then notice again, he says, peace be with you in verse 26, but this time to Thomas, who wasn't with the disciples the first time Jesus appeared to them, but he was a week later on the first day of the week again. And Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. The very things Thomas was demanding when Jesus wasn't present, Jesus shows up. And instead of rebuking him to his face for not believing, he says, peace be with you. Let me show you. It is really me. In other words, here is a word of peace to those who are disbelieving. To those who refuse to believe unless God proves it to them on their terms. He comes to you and he says, peace be with you. Now, what does this mean for you? Why is this good news? This is good news because Jesus' peace does not depend on our loyalty and devotion. It doesn't depend on our fruitfulness in ministry, our strategies and courage. It doesn't depend on our response even to these events. Whether good response or especially a defiant bad response, an unbelieving response. 
But it's worth asking, what is this peace built on? Why does Jesus come to them and the first thing he says, peace be with you? Well, think of it like this. The last thing that we hear Jesus saying before this passage is him crying out on the cross, it is finished. You see, it is because Jesus has cried out, it is finished, that he can come to us and the first word we hear is, peace be with you. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, let's back up a little bit here into verse 17. When Jesus appears to Mary and the message that he sends her back to the disciples to share, he says to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, let me pause right there. This is one of the most difficult phrases in the New Testament. Uh, what, What does Jesus mean when he says, do not cling to me? And just briefly, uh, in case you're wondering about this, what Jesus has in mind here is his earlier promise in John chapter 14, that he must go, that he can't stay. He must leave. And why is that? So that the comforter, the Holy Spirit might come. So here when, when Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me, what he's saying is, remember what I've told you. I can't stay. I still must go. And that's good for you. You know why? Because I want my spirit to dwell in you. I want my spirit to come and live among my people. I want everything that I have accomplished in my life and my death and resurrection to come coursing through your veins through your life, through the community of my people. And that can't happen unless I go back to my father. He says, don't cling to me. But then notice what he says. He says to her, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now remember who these guys are. They're traitors. They're, they have no courage. They're terrified. They're defiant. They're self-seeking. Does this, does this sound familiar? These are, this is you and me. These are people like you and me. And Jesus wants them to know, you are my family. You're my brothers. You're my sisters. We, I identify with you. I own you as my family. In in fact, I am going to our father. This is in the New Testament language of adoption, of privileges, of being welcomed into God's family. And he says, "I'm I'm going to my God and to your God. In other words, The God who would justly condemn you for eternity, for your cowardice, your lack of loyalty, your defiance, your disinterest, says, we are reconciled. There is peace. I am your father. I am your God. 
This is the good news of the resurrection. And what this means for us, I want you to think about this. This is really important. This good news of the resurrection does not change the facts of your life. I don't know the facts of your life. Some of them, some of you here, many of you here, I know a lot about your, your life and the facts of your life. But there's a ton I don't know. And those of you who I, I don't know, I obviously don't know the facts of your life. I am not here to tell you that somehow, if you just buy into this, everything will be great. The good news of the gospel cannot change the facts of your life. However, it radically changes how we experience those facts. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus puts every single detail in your life, past, present, and future, in a whole new light. Where there was once only death and condemnation and judgment and guilt, there is now the promise of new life, of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, of help. No matter what you came into this room with, there is good news for you this morning that radically changes our experience of life this side of heaven. And it's all about Jesus rising from the dead. So there's the plausibility of the resurrection, the good news of the resurrection, and then as we come into close here, the power of the resurrection. Notice in verse 21 and 23 again, Jesus, he's appeared to his disciples and he says, peace be with you. And he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He appears to these 12 disciples. And the the power of the resurrection is this. It creates a whole new community. And it's embodied here in the disciples. We even get a hint of this when we notice that John draws attention to the first day of the week in verse 1. That would have been on a Sunday. Because in, according to Judaism, the last day of the week was, was the most significant day. The day of rest. The Sabbath. But notice, three times he indicates on the first day of the week, verse 1. In verse 19, on the evening, the first day of the week... And then verse 26, eight days later, which would, is another way of saying on the first day of the week. The power of the resurrection creates a whole new community, a new one, a distinct one, a unique one. Here embodied by these disciples who are also called to carry on the work of Jesus. And notice it's a, it's a new community with a message of forgiveness for anyone. Jesus says to them, I am sending you. And he says, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, I want want to emphasize something here. What John is saying is that it is the message they proclaim that has the authority to, to grant and to withhold forgiveness. Let me put it another way. I can't say to you, on on my authority, as a minister of the gospel, 
that you are forgiven. But what I can say to you, and we do this every week in our confession of sin, on the authority of God's word, your sins are forgiven. Listen, this is where we get that from. First John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do you know you, you are forgiven? You can know you are forgiven because you believe God's word to you. You are not forgiven because you try hard. You are not forgiven because some human being says you are. You are forgiven if you believe in Jesus because God says you are. And it doesn't matter if you feel forgiven. You are forgiven because God is faithful and he is just to forgive sinners. This is a life-changing word. It is a message of forgiveness. The power of the resurrection creates a whole new community with this message of forgiveness that brings assurance and confidence despite your weaknesses and failings. But it's also a community that is a living community. It's a resurrection community. Notice in verse 22, what does Jesus say to them? He says, he, John records, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now what's going on here? Most commentators, and I find this plausible in light of Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Pentecost, here Jesus is acting out a parable of what he's going to promise will take place after he ascends to heaven. That he will pour out his Holy Spirit on his disciples and on his people. And they will become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, if we were to borrow from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verse 20, what's Jesus say? He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. What Jesus is saying to us here, we are never alone and we are never without help. He is saying, I'm going to give you everything you need to thrive the side of heaven. For this whole new community, this resurrection community, to be a community of power, a community of forgiveness, of hopefulness, of good news. Now, what does that sound like? If you are here and you believe this, or you're here and you don't believe this, what would it sound like for you to believe these things that are written? There are a few better places to go than, than words like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? This morning, can you say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That he died for me. John ends this chapter that we're, this passage we're looking at. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is a word of blessing to you this morning. If you are a believer in Jesus, and it is a word of promise and blessing to you this morning if you don't believe in Jesus. He says, blessed are you who believe 
and yet have not seen on the basis of this word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the good news of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. And even that you you have taken into account our questions and our struggles to believe this, that we're not alone, in fact. Those closest to you who knew you best, who saw you face to face, who ate with you, struggled with this. And we praise you and thank you that you've given us your word that is good and true and reliable. It is your word breathed out to us that we might know forgiveness and the new life that is in Christ and him alone. Father, would you please help us to believe these things that are written and therefore to enjoy the blessing of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.